This is a Federal News Network podcast. A union seeks emergency funding for the Social Security Administration to rebuild its depleted workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees Council 220 is asking Congress for $16.5 billion to support SSA for the rest of the fiscal 2023. More than half the funding would go toward hiring more employees. The SSA workforce is at its lowest headcount in decades. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. Jory, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Eric? Very well, very well. So what would SSA do with this emergency funding were they to get it? Well, the big focus here is hiring. About 60% of this emergency funding request, if it goes through, would go toward increasing SSA staffing, and about 20% would go toward reducing the disability claims backlog that it's currently dealing with. And one of those leads to the other. The understaffing is leading to that backlog, so it's all related here. In terms of real dollars, this would be a $1.7 billion increase above the Biden administration's fiscal 2023 budget request for SSA. Now, of course, that is still being worked out. Congress uh, has a continuing resolution in place through December 16th, and it's trying to work out that comprehensive spending deal for the rest of fiscal 2023. But in terms of the headcount here, SSA is running with 4,000 fewer field office and teleservice center employees than it did 12 years ago, and that's a 25-year low for the agency. You mentioned that it was the cause of a backlog for the disability uh, claims adjustment period. Um, What other impact does short staffing have on SSA when it is facing such a uh, high turnover? Well, it really affects everything. It's just been just given this point in the pandemic where SSA employees have come back into the office. They are dealing with those backlogs. They are dealing with long lines of people in person waiting to get benefits, waiting to get services from SSA, and it's just been a friction point for everyone involved. To give you a bit of some context here, between 2010 and 2021, Congress cut SSA's operating budget by about 13%, and in that same period of time, SSA's beneficiaries, their number of people they're servicing, increased by 21%. So, We did hear from Senator Bernie Sanders at a virtual AFGE rally on this issue. He said that a record 70 million Americans are currently receiving Social Security benefits, and this imbalance of the workload and the workforce is leaving employees stressed out there. These cuts are forcing fewer workers to do more work with fewer resources. Every single day, I hear from Vermonters experiencing serious delays with the Social Security Administration. Many have been waiting for up to six months to see a single benefit payment they were already approved for by Social Security. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, we're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. So what else is AFGE worried about when it comes to Social Security operations? Well, they're also concerned about telework. As I mentioned, the SSA workforce is largely back in the office, working in person. There is some telework on the table here as part of an interim agreement. So the union, they're calling for a uh, broader telework policy. They're saying that the employees were more productive during telework. And we heard from AFGE Council 220 President Jessica LaPointe saying that this is something that is good for not just the workforce, but for the people they serve. This isn't about employee convenience. 
but instead about the fundamental need to make the agency more efficient, effective, and responsive to the public we serve. And that is Jessica LaPointe, who is the AFGE Council 220 president, speaking here with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. So what has SSA said about all these issues? It's not like they're blind to them, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I'd say that the SSA union uh working relationship is one of the more frayed ones out there in the federal workforce um an ssa spokesman did say that at this point field office employees can telework up to two days per week and that teleservice employees can telework up to four days per week and at this point ssa is currently not renegotiating its telework policy with aafge and that all the parties have agreed to continue under the current negotiated provisions at this time one thing that SSA can agree with the union here is that they do agree that the agency is understaffed and are calling on Congress for funding so that they can hire more people. So we've heard from union leadership. We heard from uh, you know a couple elected leaders there. What about the actual union members themselves? What are they saying about these problems? So Council 220 has held a recent union-led survey of its members and found that 90% of its respondents agreed that mandatory telework back in that era of COVID was making them more productive and more focused. They really appreciated the work-life balance where teleworking parents could attend uh, events with their children. They were able to save on childcare expenses for when their children would return from school. They'd be there to help them out. And so the the ultimate conclusion here is something that we heard from Sherry Jackson, who's AFGE Council 220's second vice president and legislative action coordinator. She says that this survey shows that because of this dissatisfaction and this curtailing of telework, she says that half of respondents said that they expect to leave the agency within the next year. Since the onset of the pandemic, a fundamental shift in the global workplace has occurred. No longer do employers insist that their workers spend eight hours a day, five days a week at a centralized office location. A transformation born from a public health crisis has now been widely adapted as a tool to increase both workplace productivity and employee morale. And that was Sherry Jackson, who is the second vice president and legislative action coordinator for AFGE Council 220. We've been speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, who I'm sure will be updating this as this problem will probably not be going away anytime soon. No, it just keeps on continuing here. Thanks, Eric. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com.